working our way through one of the most action-packed, uh, action-packed books in all of the Bible, the book of Acts. Um, we haven't even made it through two full chapters yet. We're about four weeks in now, and already we've been given a front row seat to the resurrected Jesus. We've been given a front row seat to Jesus's ascension to the Father's right hand. We've been given a front row seat to an outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the likes of which the world had never known up to that point. We've been given a front row seat to arguably the greatest sermon ever preached outside of Jesus's Sermon on the Mount. We've been given a front row seat to the conversion of 3,000 souls in a single day. My guess would be that much of what we've seen up to this point in the book of Acts, you have not seen with your own eyes. This morning, we get a front row seat to one of the earliest expressions of the New Testament church in action, and I hope these are some things that we actually have seen with our own eyes. We have a chance to take a look at Luke, the doctor's description of a healthy body, a church body, that is, dynamic, thriving, alive, and active, moving. And so if you have a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and open up to Acts chapter 2. That's where we'll be this morning for the third week in a row, verses 42 through 47, a little bit shorter passage this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in the row in front of you. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. That Bible is yours as the church's gift to you. If you don't own a Bible or the one you brought with you this morning is difficult to track with in terms of translation. Let me just go ahead and pray for us and and we'll dive in and get to work. Holy Spirit, help. Without you, the moments to come as we sit with the scriptures open will be fruitless and futile. A man-centered, man-driven, man-empowered effort. So I pray that you would work in our midst in these coming moments together. The same Holy Spirit who came on the day of Pentecost. We pray that you would stir in our midst in the, in the middle of this makeshift auditorium as your bride has come together, this expression of your bride to worship you. I pray that you would move in our hearts. I pray that we would be reminded of the good news of Jesus and how the gospel informs everything that we will see this morning. I pray that grace would compel and empower us to live out what you have called us to as your church. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen. So picking up in verse 42, let's just do this. Let's read the entire passage, and then we'll come back and we'll work our way through it bit by bit. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. You get this beautiful picture of the church, a picture of what it looks like to live according to the Holy Spirit, following the example and teachings of Jesus Christ himself. The lives of Jesus' followers we see were marked by love, 
generosity, humility, and unity. They learned together. They prayed together. They shared meals together. They set an example of selling and giving away their possessions to anyone in need. The Holy Spirit living in them testified to the truth that Jesus was and is Christ the Lord. Signs and wonders were done through them. With humble boldness, they lived in a way that did not follow the popular wisdom of the day, and it was contagious. No one could improve their status in society by joining this community, and yet they grew in number daily. I think one of the first things to consider with a passage like this, and really a book of the Bible like this, perhaps you've heard the argument of the prescriptive versus descriptive. You know, are, are we to look at a passage like this, even a book like this, and see it as simply describing what happened a couple thousand years ago with nothing for the church to grab hold of today, that would be the descriptive angle on things. Or is this prescriptive in its fullness? Are we to look at everything we see in this passage and embrace any and all of it across the boards? One of the things that I think gets lost, particularly with a passage like this, is that as we'll see as we work our way through it, it's piece by piece, many if not all of the values themselves we see elsewhere in scripture. And so you really don't have to press the argument very much. The apostles teaching, for example, Ephesians 6, 17, Paul says, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, which is the word of God. Second Timothy three sixteen, Paul says to his protege, all scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. Fellowship is a value. First John 1, 7, the Apostle John says, but if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Breaking bread. All you have to do is look at the prequel to the book of Acts to see Jesus over and over and over again around the table for the sake of his ministry. In fact, there's a book written, I'll quote it just a few moments from now, A Meal with Jesus, written by a guy named Tim Chester, uh, based on all of the moments that we see Jesus around the table breaking bread with people in the name of discipleship and or evangelism. Or particularly, specifically, as it pertains to communion. 1 Corinthians eleven six. 6, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, Paul says, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. What about the value of prayer? Well, Paul says, 1 Thessalonians five seventeen. pray without ceasing. Or Romans 12, 12, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer. What about sacrificial care? Well, we have passages like Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Romans 12, 13 says it this way, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. What about evangelism? 2 Corinthians 5, 18 through 20, all this is from God who through Christ reconciled us to himself, Paul says, and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, Paul says, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God or 1 Peter 3.15, famous passage. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. That aside from some minor details like the fact that we don't have a temple to gather in, we have this makeshift auditorium. 
Little details like that, aside from those, the values that we see in this passage can be found elsewhere in the New Testament, and thus we should take this window into the early church very seriously for ourselves as individuals and as a collective body. The first thing to notice is that the church was devoted to feasting on a healthy diet of the word of God. To use that word picture, Luke, the physician, is, is giving us a picture of the diet and exercise of a healthy body of Christ. The diet is the apostles' teaching, verse 42. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. You can, you can build a community of people based on a devotion to a number of things, right? We know this to be true. Common hobbies, similar life experiences, common stage of life, that the church is a community of people brought together in devotion to the teachings of Scripture, which is inextricably intertwined with devotion to the hero of Scripture, Jesus Christ himself. We see that going back to Peter's sermon that brought these people into the fold in the first place, right? He was preaching the Word of God, and a church was established. And it was Peter's preaching of Jesus as the hero of all of those passages of the Old Testament that he walked through with the crowd that actually converted and brought about uh, the, the beautiful church that we see in this morning's passage, that one evidence of the Spirit's presence in the church is a deep love and loyalty to the Bible and its hero. John Stott says, the Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. I think that's short enough that you could tweet that one if you wanted to. That, that's, that's the kind of community that we're, we're seeking to build here. A community growing in love for and loyalty to the scriptures. A community uh, growing in love for and loyalty to the hero of the scriptures, Jesus. Which is why I find it so incredibly encouraging. Every time I hear somebody say, I, I love this church because the Bible is preached and Jesus is made much of. Anytime people stop saying that, we have a, a real problem on our hands. If the Bible is the steady diet of the church, then the question begs to be answered, what is the exercise regimen? The, the remainder of this passage, I think, gives us an answer to that question. Look again at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. Now, that word is one of the most misconstrued words um, in, in the present day vocabulary of the church. That word, it comes from the Greek word koinonia. It's a word that it does present a little bit of a challenge for us. That word, um, it means something a little different today than it did in the, the early days of the church. That word carries... Uh, today with it, the idea of friendship among believers. But it actually meant much more than that if you go back a couple thousand years ago to this moment in history that we're looking at here in Acts chapter 2. In those days, it was ultimately about a sense of common identity and purpose, which would, of course, lead to friendship uh, as, you, as you're living that out. Coming back to the Greek word, koinonia, just a, just a few hundred years before Jesus came onto the scene, Alexander the Great sought to conquer the world and, and spread Greek culture and language everywhere. And in doing so, the classical Greek language, which was a more complex version of the Greek language, was replaced with what was known as koine Greek, which simply means common Greek, layman's Greek, simple everyday form of the language accessible to everyday people like you and me. Koine, common. Koinonia, which is where we get this word fellowship in this morning's passage, means that which is shared in common. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and a notable, noticeable sense of common identity and purpose. Common identity rooted in Jesus and a common purpose in worshiping, serving, and witnessing to Jesus. It's both. That in terms of a common identity, 1 Corinthians 1, 9, Paul says, 
God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That, that we share together, if you're a Christian, in a common identity in and relationship with Jesus. Christians are unified because we're in union with the one and same Jesus Christ. That we're, to use John 15 language, we're all branches intimately connected to the same vine, Jesus Christ. We're not in Christ independent of one another. We're in Christ together. That the Christian life is a life devoted to not only fighting for intimacy with the vine, but also a life devoted to fighting for oneness with the branches. And we've talked about this before. Crazy thought. Jesus actually himself prayed that for you. For you. John 17. Jesus prays for believers. Verse 21. That they may all be one just as you, Father, are in me and I in you that they also may be in us so that the world may believe that you have sent me. That Jesus Christ himself prayed that our unity would be like the unity between God the Father and God the Son. That'll hurt your head if you stop long enough to actually think about that. And he prayed that in our unity, the world would believe that the Father sent the Son on a peacemaking mission. Our fellowship, our common identity rooted in Jesus puts the very gospel on display for our watching world. I think I've said this in this series even, that when you gather together in living rooms in the context of community groups, just look around. Would that crowd be together if it weren't for Jesus Christ? In most cases, probably not. But fellowship doesn't just have to do with a common identity rooted in Jesus, but also a common purpose in worshiping Jesus, serving Jesus, witnessing to Jesus, which we'll see in action as we continue to work our way through this morning's passage. Suffice it to say, it's not just about the gospel in me or the gospel in you. It's about the gospel with us and the gospel to others. Kent Hughes in his commentary says it this way. He says, fellowship is not just a sentimental feeling of oneness. It is not punch and cookies. It does not take place simply because we are in the church hall. Fellowship comes through giving. True fellowship costs. So many people never know the joys of Christian fellowship because they have never learned to give themselves away. They visit a church or small study group with an eye only for their own needs, hardly aware of others, and go away saying, there is no fellowship there. The truth is, Hughes says, We will have fellowship only when we make it a practice to reach out to others and give something of ourselves. Here's one reason we know that that fellowship requires the giving of ourselves. It's something we've talked about as a church before. There are at least 37 one another statements in the New Testament alone, and they cannot be lived out selfishly. I'll give you just a few, just a handful. Romans 12.10, outdo one another in showing honor. How do you do that selfishly? Romans 12, 16, live in harmony with one another. How do you do that selfishly? Romans 13, 8, love one another. Should I keep saying, how do you do that selfishly after every one of these and just extend the sermon by about three minutes? Galatians 5, 13, serve one another in love. Galatians 6, 2, bear one another's burdens. Ephesians 4, 32, be kind to and forgiving of one another. Hebrews 10, 24, stir up one another to love and good works. James 5, 16, confess your sins to one another. Pray for one another. Those are just a few. The list goes on. We could keep going. And notice that these are not just statements, but they're commands. They're imperatives. 
Biblically, we're commanded to live the one another life in response to the gospel of grace, sharing in a common identity rooted in Jesus and a common purpose in worshiping, serving, and bearing witness to Jesus, involving real flesh and blood people. I was, I was sobered with this question this week as I prepared this message. This passage, I think, presents us with an opportunity to wrestle with, with this. Do we love the idea of community more than the actual people in the family of God? Do we love the idea of community? Meaning that if, it, if, if people don't live up to the expectations, then we'll just run on to the next crowd, the next group of people, and try it all over again. We're all a mess. We're all imperfect. We talked about that prior to this series as we walked through uh, the first of Jesus' blessed are statements. We're poor in spirit. We're desperately in need of Jesus. We're going to stumble our way forward as the church. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer talks about community in his book, Life Together. He says this. He says, it is grace, nothing but grace, that we are allowed to live in community with Christian brothers and sisters. The physical presence of other Christians is a source of incomparable joy and strength to the believer. Do we, do we see the church that way? Do we believe that? Moving on, not only is the church a people devoted to feasting on God's word and sharing in a common identity and purpose, the church is also a people devoted to breaking bread with each other. Verse 42 says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread. And then in verse 47, it says, In breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Some people believe that, that these verses are referring specifically to the Lord's Supper. Others believe them to be referring to the sharing of meals with each other uh, in a more generalized sense. I'm not sure you have to choose. The church as a family implies both. We partake of the Lord's Supper together as a covenant community when we gather in this place every single week and we share our kitchen and dining room tables with each other because that's what families do. To quote that book I mentioned earlier, A Meal with Jesus, Tim Chester says, food matters. We can just stop there and go hallelujah, right? <laughs> food matters. Meals matter. Meals are full of significance, he says. Few acts are more expressive of companionship than the shared meal. Someone with whom we share food is likely to be our friend or well on the way to becoming one. You know this is true because when you get in a rift with someone you share a roof with, the table gets a little quieter. I would go further than what Chester says and say more than, than what he's arguing for. Our meals are a foretaste of the future marriage supper of the Lamb. It's one of the reasons we take communion every single week. It's one of the reasons we've shifted our community group rhythms to include a family dinner. We want to be a, a church culture that, and foster a church culture that says time around the table is meaningful, so meaningful that it'll carry on into eternity. The church is also a people devoted to prayer. Coming back to verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Similar to the breaking of bread, scholars and commentators are divided on whether we're talking about formal prayers and temple worship. I think that's part of it. We'll see that next week as Peter heads to the temple for a time of prayer. 
Is it that? Is it the everyday rhythms of prayer in the lives of God's people? Again, I'm not sure we have to choose because both are a part of the Christian life. When we look beyond the book of Acts to the fullness of Scripture, a culture of prayer in the life of a church cannot be overstated. We, we've, we fought really hard to try to create and foster more and more of a culture of prayer as a church over the last few years. From the pre-service prayer that happens in that room on the other side of the wall, the front room, as Jason referred to it, or the prayer that happens after the sermon every single Sunday when we gather in this place as we try to open the door for people to be prayed for and with, to, uh, again, coming back to our shift in community group rhythms, to the gospeling and prayer nights that we're looking to infuse one out of every four weeks, that we, we really want to foster a culture of prayer as a church and, and continue to grow in that, that the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. And one of the greatest weapons of warfare we have at our disposal is prayer. Tony Morita, in his commentary on the book of Acts says, and I love this because it's so comprehensive. He says, the believers prayed together corporately. They personally prayed without ceasing. They prayed in the temple, in homes, as they walked along the road, as they encountered the sick and afflicted, before they preached sermons, before they heard sermons, while they were being persecuted in planned times of intense intercession over particular situations, as they offered thanks for their food, as they gave thanks to Jesus for the forgiveness of sins, as they praised God in song, and as they offered up petitions to the Father to meet daily needs. All of this reminds us that a healthy church is a praying church. The early church had few earthly resources, but that didn't keep them from shaking the world for Christ, he says, because they had heavenly resources. These they experienced through dependent prayer. And so one of, my, one of my prayers for this church is that we would be known as a people who not only put hands and feet to the gospel, but also knees to the gospel, dependent upon the Lord, pleading with the, with the Spirit to move mightily in and through us. Let's keep going. The church is also a people empowered by the Spirit and awestruck when He moves. Look at verse 43. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. That, going back to a couple weeks ago, regardless of where you land on the gifts of the Spirit, the Spirit of God is still in the business of unifying and empowering God's people to declare His mighty works. The Spirit of God, I've said it before, is, is mightier than Bible Belt moralism. The Spirit of God is mightier than the Spirit in the suburbs that seeks to smother the Christian spirit. And we should both expect to see the Spirit move in our midst and stand in awe every single time He does. I was sobered by this statement in commentary by Derek Thomas on the book of Acts. He says, Today, for most people, including most professing Christians, God is an idea to talk about or an inference from an argument or a family tradition to be preserved. Yet for a very few, God is a stark, fearsome, stunning, awesome, and shocking present reality. Where, he asks, are the churches of whom Luke could say today, fear, awe, wonder, trembling is upon every soul. It's as you've heard me say a number of times in this very same room, it's seeing Jesus like Peter saw Aslan in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. It's, it's a declaration. I'm longing to see him even if I do feel frightened when it comes to the point. I've got to get my arms around his big, bushy mane. I love him. I've got to be close to him. I've got to experience his nearness. And yet the thought of his drawing near, his actually doing that, his moving in power, brings me to my knees in awe. 
One way you could say it, though his growl will never consume me, it never ceases to amaze me. Let's keep going. The church is also a people devoted to being present with one another. Verses 44 and 46. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. That The early church knew nothing of compartmentalized Christianity. They shared their lives with each other. They prioritized time with each other. Both a gathered and a scattered presence both in the temple and in homes, both in this makeshift auditorium and as we leave this place, together, 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 not just breathing an hour and a half gulp of air with each other and then disappearing off into the darkened corners of the community, never to be seen until we do it again a week later, together. The church is also a people devoted to radical generosity, Look at verse 45. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Such a commitment to radical generosity that many in response to this passage have cried communism. We we know that's not the case because the idea of private property is found throughout the scriptures. Even verse 46, they broke bread in their homes. We also know according to the scriptures that stealing is a sin. The Bible doesn't teach communism, but it it certainly does teach radical generosity among Christ followers. Though I'm not a a huge fan of alliteration in the life of the church, sometimes I do find it to be helpful. That time, talent, treasure language that maybe you've heard before in the context of the church, all of these things are gifts that have been given to us by God to steward for his glory. The, The early church had an incredible reputation for caring for their own. And it left a lasting impression on on those who were not of the faith. Listen to these words from a writing in the days of the early church. A man named uh, Aristides, he he attempted to explain uh, to the emperor in his day the reasons for the spread of Christianity. And this is what he said. He said, they do not worship strange gods and they go their way in all modesty and cheerfulness. Falsehood is not found among them, and they love one another. And from widows, they do not turn away their esteem. And they deliver the orphan from him who treats him harshly. And he who has gives to him who has not without boasting. And when they see a stranger, they take him into their homes and rejoice over him as a very brother. For they do not call them brethren after the flesh, but brethren after the spirit and in God." He goes on to say, and whenever one of their poor passes from the world, each one of them, according to his ability, gives heed to him and carefully sees to his burial. And if they hear that one of their number is imprisoned or afflicted on account of the name of their Messiah, all of them anxiously minister to his necessity. And if it is possible to redeem him, they set him free. And if there is among them any that is poor and needy, and if they have no spare food, they fast two or three days in order to supply to the needy their lack of food. Christ followers starving themselves so that others within the body of Christ might not go hungry. You go, how how do we embrace that kind of sacrifice and empathy? I think the answer is the gospel. Only the gospel can empower that. Jesus became poor for our sake. Our redemption cost Jesus his life. The gospel is the kindling that fuels our empathy and care for others in the family of God. And that empathy and care has radical impact on the world that's looking in on the church. What do you mean you starved yourself so that someone else might not go hungry? Who does that? 
What, what do you mean you went without so that someone else might have their needs met? People struggle to know what to do with that, especially in our affluent context. It's evangelistically compelling, which helps to make all the more sense of the salvations that the New Testament church saw in its early days, verse 47, but let me not get ahead of myself. The church is also, verse 46, a praising community. It says, they receive their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. That, this might be my favorite verse in this entire passage because what it essentially says is that deep devotion and hearty laughter can coexist. And not only can they, they should in the fellowship of the church. That as you've heard me say over and over again, we have every reason to be the most celebratory people on the planet, a rowdy bunch. We're part of this incredible gospel story, a story that involves a God who would become a character in the very story that he's authoring in order to rescue us at great cost to himself. It's a unique story. The, the heart sings in, uh, of that in which it delights, which brings up a question I know for me personally. What do I not yet know or what have I forgotten that if I fix my mind and heart on long enough would increase my affection for the Lord? What, what do I need to hear that would warm my heart in such a way that my disconnected, contrived singing would be transformed into a warm outpouring of delight for God and in God? And I think the answer is simply the song of the gospel. It's the song of the gospel that, that brings about a gladness of heart and a song of praise, which is why we want to be a gospel-centered church, bringing ourselves back over and over and over again to that one and same beautiful song, hearing God sing over us in Christ and responding with, with words of praise and hearts of gladness. Lastly, the church is a people devoted to evangelism. Verse 47 they were praising God and they had favor with all the people and the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Coming back to the very first week of this series, Acts chapter one, verse eight, Jesus says what? But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. That the church was never intended to turn inward on itself. How tragic that there's even a phrase known as a holy huddle. John Stott says, those first Jerusalem Christians were not so preoccupied with learning, sharing, and worshiping that they forgot about witnessing. For the Holy Spirit, he says, is a missionary spirit who created a missionary church. That we get to tell people the gospel story, a story that involves a God who not only creates, but makes himself known to his creation. We don't have to claw with the, through the lens of human speculation to try to figure out if there's a God and what he's like. He's revealed himself to us. He willingly became a character in order to rescue the very ones who rebelled against him as the author. We have a God who heals. We have a God who cares. We have a God who believes in happily ever afters, amen? We have the privilege of showing those who don't yet follow Jesus how our story connects to God's bigger story. We get to share with them how God has rescued us and continues to rescue us. We get to put on display the beautiful picture of a family of Christ followers living in light of the gospel. We get to put the one another life on display in all of its messiness and beauty, declaring the good news of Jesus with our lips and our very lives. 
It starts with our own heart. It moves outward into our families, our neighborhoods, our streets, our workplaces, our schools, and ultimately to the end of the earth. Here's where hopefully alliteration once again might serve us well. Think in terms of interceding, investing, and inviting. We get to intercede. We get to pray that the Holy Spirit would begin to work in the hearts of those around us who don't yet follow Jesus. We get to pray for opportunities for our lives to intertwine with theirs. We get to invest. We get to serve those people in various ways to show them that we care about them, that they're not just a project but a person who deeply needs Jesus. We get to invite We get to welcome them into our lives with greater intentionality. We get to welcome them into conversations centered on the gospel of Jesus Christ. We get to welcome them into contexts like these, our Sunday gatherings, into living rooms and community groups, into gospel alliance type relationships. We get to welcome them to invite them to receive the grace and salvation of Jesus Christ, calling them to faith and repentance, just like Peter earlier in this chapter. One of the most convicting questions that I think many of us in evangelical circles could possibly sit with is, am I a friend of sinners? And here's the good news. If the answer is no, you can rest in the fact that Jesus was the perfect friend of sinners on your behalf. Here's where the gospel comes to bear this morning. That Jesus was the perfect embodiment of everything that we see in this morning's passage. Jesus was the perfect student of scripture where you fail. Jesus was the perfect prayer warrior where you fall asleep on the job. Jesus was the perfect embodiment of radical generosity when with white-knuckled fist, you cling in stinginess to what you have. Jesus was the perfect missionary when out of fear or whatever other uh, motivator uh, causes it, you fail to share Jesus well. Thanks be to God that our salvation isn't based on our perfectly living out this morning's passage. Thanks be to God that we have a Savior who did on our behalf and who bore every one of our failures in his body on the tree. Amen? We get to embrace what we see in this morning's passage, not in order to earn anything with God, but simply as an act of worship in response to God's grace in Jesus Christ, knowing that we are loved perfectly already right now this moment in Jesus. Knowing that, what if? What if, if you, if you listen to cultural scholars, missiologists, people who look at the trends of culture and history and society, you'll hear a lot of people talk about the fact that the United States is really following suit to what you see across the pond in Europe and particularly in the UK. Scotland is a great example. Um, Scotland was once a, a, a place of vibrant Christian faith, the gospel thriving alive and well, and things then shifted into this, uh, this sort of cultural nominal Christianity. Maybe that sounds familiar. The church is an establishment as an institution. You're a Christian by legacy, not because you actually believe in any of it, because your mom and dad or your grandma or your grandpa was a Christian. And, and slowly over the course of time, As culture moved from a vibrant Christianity to a cultural nominal checking of the boxes and going through the motions, eventually it led to a post-Christian culture. So that now, if you go over to Scotland, I was talking to a buddy of mine even just a couple weeks ago who studied in Scotland for a few years, that 
the mass majority of people are atheists, agnostics, or people who um, declare no affiliation as it pertains to religion, such that my buddy said, it's the closest thing to the Acts chapter two church I've ever seen. People actually look a little weird over there um, as Christ followers. They stick out a little bit. Uh, They don't just blend in with society. And one of the things that I remember on a trip to Philadelphia, I think it was eight years ago, inner city Philadelphia, Kensington Avenue, one of the the most dangerous streets in the U.S., walking those streets, seeing big cathedral after cathedral, beautiful buildings, and asking some of the local people overseeing various ministries, you know, what church meets there? And, And being told over and over again, oh, that's actually a tourist attraction now. Or that's a heroin hospital for addicts. It's actually been repurposed because there is no church there anymore. And I remember as I walked those streets eight years ago, uh, talking with some of those leaders about the fact that the Southeast will probably be the last to go, the last to become truly post-Christian. We're the last at everything progressive, right? So we'll, we'll eventually get there like everybody else. It'll just take us a little longer as we try to like white knuckle our way against it and, and fight it with everything we have but I think we should fight it with everything we have. One of the things, as I I left that conversation with my buddy a couple weeks ago, um, two authors tend to come to mind for me most often, either C.S. Lewis or Dr. Seuss. And in this instance, it was was Dr. Seuss who who won my heart over that day. Um, One of Dr. Seuss's greatest writings is a story called the Lorax. If you've never heard that, um, there will be people to pray with and for you after the service. Um, we love to pray for you and talk with you about that. But seriously, it's a, it's a fantastic story. You read it, and it's essentially the story of a, a guy who comes into this beautiful, vibrant land filled with truffula trees, color everywhere, beauty, life, vibrancy. And in the name of the almighty dollar, he proceeds to chop down every tree one by one in order to create uh, his invention and, and sell it to the masses. And slowly but surely, this beautiful, vibrant landscape eventually becomes a wasteland. And as the story goes, as you move toward the end of the story, the onceler, the one who chopped down all of the trees one by one, has an encounter with a little boy. And, and he says to the little boy as he As he drops a truffula seed, the last of the truffula seeds, into the little boy's hands, he says, unless someone like you cares a whole lot, nothing is going to get better. It's not. And and I think for me, for far too long, I've thought to myself, you know what? Eventually, the American South will become post-Christian, and then we'll finally stick out, and we won't have to deal with this cultural nominal Christianity thing, and we can really live this thing out. And I think if I'm honest, I've just been waiting for it all to get there, not thinking to myself that maybe right now we can begin, and I think we already are beginning to plant the truffula seeds of gospel revival in the American South. About 15 years ago, something happened, something shifted in the name of gospel centrality and fluency that, that has begun to take root. I don't think it is the majority of the context that we find ourselves in, but I think we can make a significant impact, and I think we should embrace this for the sake of what God might do. And, and I really do think if we do, that We may not make our way toward a post-Christian barren landscape. Maybe we will. Maybe in God's providence and sovereignty, we will get there anyway. But we shouldn't sit back and just wait for it. That 
the reality is we can live what we see in Acts chapter 2 out right now, knowing that we're not doing it for the sake of merit, but knowing that we're doing it simply as an act of worship in light of God's grace in Jesus Christ. And let's see what God might do. Let's look a little weird as we try to live this thing out, even weird to the eyes of nominal cultural Christians looking in going, that's not my Christianity, and watch God rescue them too. 